Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on numbers 14 through 19. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. Uh, If questions come up during the course of your reading, please ask them by going to bit.ly slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. I'd love to hear any questions you may have, even if they're questions from earlier chapters in scripture. Uh, And this week, we see several examples of actions and consequences. The narrative of this section sums up, I think, the beauty of the book of Numbers. And one of the reasons I think it's so tragic that uh, we tend to think of the book of Numbers as just a bunch of lists of genealogies, when in fact, there's so much narrative and and, and so much depth here. This... This section contains the full spectrum of the human experience with God and with one another. On the one hand, we have the rabble-rousers among the Israelites who constantly depict Egypt as a place of happiness, while on the other hand, we have Moses and Aaron who constantly plead with God to offer grace even to the rebellious people. And I think these stories should prompt us to ask ourselves what consequences our actions have. After all, we've been given great power in being children of God, and with great power, there comes great responsibility, Uh, and the, the Israelites have to reckon with this as well. Our reading this week picks up right after the spies return and offer their report on the promised land. And as you may remember, this report was not good. While they share that the land is marvelous and fruitful, they bring back a bundle of grapes that it takes two people to, to, to hold on to. The inhabitants of the land, they say, are terrifyingly huge. They, they are reminiscent of the Nephilim from the story of uh, right before the flood where the sons of, Dodd came, sons of God came down and had children with the daughters of men. Uh, and these were the, the heroes of renown. Uh, these demigods were, were the stuff of legend. And these were the type of people who were inhabiting the promised land. How on earth could the folks of Israel think that they could take over the promised land? Of the 12 spies, we see in this chapter that only two, Joshua and Caleb, are focused on the promise of God instead of the obstacles that present themselves between the people and God's promises. And I think it's easy for us to look back at these spies condescendingly, wondering why didn't they have faith enough to trust God? And I think, you know, yes, they should have had faith enough to trust God. Uh, God has proven over and over again to be trustworthy as the Israelites have left Egypt, as they've crossed the Red Sea, as they've gotten the law on Mount Sinai, etc., etc. But consider for a minute how it must have felt to plan, to dream about your future home for two or three years as a desert refugee, having your entire civilization flipped on its head by freedom from slavery and, and coming to grips with your own liberty, your own uh, uh, understanding of God, only to find out The current occupants of your dream home are bigger and stronger than you, and they aren't thrilled that you want their home to be your home. Maybe you've encountered this sort of obstacle to God's plan for your life. Uh, You've seen giants standing between you and God's plans, and those giants seem insurmountable. And you think, "Uh, maybe it's better just to give up, because God would need to do such an unlikely miracle in order for me to get these promises I thought God had promised me. 
That's why it's so important to remember your past. Remember what God has saved you from. Remember the depths from which God has saved us. I think the rabble-rousers here suggest it would be better to return to Egypt, where they were all slaves, instead of risking facing the giants in the land God had promised. Had they actually remembered the slavery and bondage from which they had come, would they, would they have actually suggested this? I don't think so. And like in the aftermath of the episode of the Golden Calf, God shares with Moses a desire to wipe out the children of Israel. In response, Moses returns in his plea with God over and over again to God's reputation, staking all of Moses, Moses stakes all his protests on God's very identity that God revealed to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, um, saying, you know, aren't you a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Isn't that who you declared yourself to be? So God walks a fine line in response to this. God sends the children of Israel wandering through the desert for the next 40 years, paying a year for every day their spies had explored the promised land. And by doing this, all of the current rebels are going to die off, yet the people will survive. Joshua and Caleb, as the two spies who brought a good report, will be preserved throughout the wanderings. In fact, it looks like the other 10 spies die immediately, and Israel begins to realize the full ramifications of their choice that, like, oh, maybe we should have gone against these giants. Maybe we should have trusted God. And so they decide, all right, don't worry, God, we got this. We're following you now. Uh, Thanks be to God. We'll go up against these giants. Um, We'll take them. We'll take care of them. But but they go up against the giants without bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, and without bringing Moses, <laughs> who's their leader. They don't have any of the leadership on board with this. And they get routed. They get just absolutely destroyed. So after this demoralizing episode, the next chapter offers an interlude of sorts, giving some laws that offer a future and a hope for a sinful and a broken people. Throughout these laws, there's a refrain. When you come to the land to which I am bringing you, God says multiple times, uh, and then commands them to do X, Y, Z. God's plans have not been frustrated. The promised land is still the destination. And so much of the first section of this legal interlude discusses how to atone for systemic sin, sin of the sort that the Israelites participated in when they were complicit in the decision not to invade the promised land. Now, there's also sin that we experience, uh, that we participate in, that is intentional and deliberate. Uh, Part of the the laws have to do with uh, a case study of a man who deliberately goes out and collects wood on the Sabbath day, knowing that this is wrong and doing it anyway. Um, While this sentence of of death uh, to, to the man who gathers wood on the Sabbath day feels unduly harsh, I think, to our sensibilities... By framing this, uh, this case law with stories of mutiny and the danger that mutiny poses to the community, we begin to get a clearer sense of how one person can begin to threaten the holiness of the community of the people of God. And I think this is particularly the case when the community itself has been set aside as God's royal priesthood. 
the fringes and the blue cord that uh, the Israelites put on their on their clothing symbolized the royalty and the set-apartness, the consecratedness of the entire community, a community who God has willingly joined with. No longer is God simply the great I am, but instead God self-identifies by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because God is uniquely and specifically Israel's God, how Israel acts impacts how people understand this God. And having a reminder of the God they serve on their clothing helps them to remember that their actions have consequences, their choices have implications. And immediately after this interlude, we're hit with another rebellion. And this rebellion is more personally directed against Moses than the last, and it's a comprehensive rebellion. One portion of this rebellion involves a group of Levites led by a man named Korah, who challenges Moses' spiritual authority in the community. Another portion of the rebellion involves a group of Reubenites led by men named Dathan and Abiram, challenging Moses' political authority in the community. And if Moses is stripped of his priestly authority, spiritual authority, along with his political authority, then he's stripped of his entire authority in the community. So as you may remember, uh, the, the Levites were the carriers of, of the priesthood, uh, and the Reubenites uh, traced their lineage back to Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob, and as such, uh, ought to have been the first among the brothers, ought to have received the birthright that ended up going partially to Judah and partially to Ephraim, Joseph's son. However, Reuben lost his privilege by sleeping with one of his father's wives, which is why Reuben did not receive the birthright. So there's, there's almost this, this idea that these Reubenites think, well, as children of Reuben, we should rightly be leading this band. And at stake in this rebellion are several things. We have to ask ourselves how egalitarian in practice are the people of God. If all are priests, if all are royal, does that mean all have an equal right to lead? Now, if you've watched the Disney Pixar movie, The Incredibles, you may remember the villain claiming that saying everyone is special just means that nobody is. But that's not the vision, I think, for the community of God's people. There are leaders, guides, teachers that God raises up, whether through the ordered ministries of the church today or through the prophets, priests, kings, and judges of the Hebrew Bible. Yes, everybody is a priest and a king and has a special role to play in God's work, but not everybody is going to play the role of leader, guide, or teacher. And in this case, God has given Moses specifically a divine command, a divine commission, and a vision for the people of Israel to free them from the bondage of Egypt and to lead them to the promised land. And when the people bought into Moses' vision by following him out of Egypt, following him across the Red Sea, onto Mount Sinai, and up to the promised land, they communicated implicitly and explicitly faith and trust in Moses. And there are ways to take issue with how a leader leads, but one way that certainly is not okay is rabble-rousing and attempting to usurp power by gaining a contingency, uh, gaining a, a, a portion of the community uh, that will help you rabble-rouse. And God makes this clear through extraordinary means in this chapter. The earth swallows some rebels, 
Fire consumes others. Being part of God's holy community means higher expectations. And when you're given access to God, you cannot treat that access lightly. So after the rebellion, the rest of the Israelites were understandably shocked. Many cried out against Moses. After all, if the Israelites are indeed God's people, God's treasured possession, then Moses, standing in opposition to these rebels, leading to their death, must mean that Moses is responsible for the death of God's people, which must mean that Moses is against God. That's how the logic, I think, worked in the minds of these folks. It must have seemed like Moses was placing himself against God's people in opposition to them. And, and instead of defending himself, Moses again defends the people, uh, making uh, intercession with God on their behalf. And because Moses intercedes so quickly, the plague that had begun stops quickly and only, quote unquote, kills 14,700 people. Let me pause for a moment. 14,000. 700 people is a terrible loss of life. Moses has shown incredible consistency and poise throughout all this, but we might wonder about the God who regularly brings plagues, opens up the earth, and shoots fire against those called God's treasured possession. How treasured are the Israelites, really, if they're going to be consumed by fire? They're going to be buried alive. Well, I think it comes back to the idea that with great power, there comes great responsibility. When we act, there are always consequences to our actions. And for Israel to have an intimate relationship with God, they need to know that their behavior matters. We can think about it maybe better if we have an analogy from real life. If, if I get married to a spouse and I continue flirting with other women as if I were not married, that would introduce a level of toxicity into my relationship. By engaging in a, a, the intimacy of marriage, I then remove from the table my ability to pursue other intimate relationships. Uh, there's not room for that in my life anymore. In the same way, I uh, God often compares the Israelites pursuing other gods and other relationships with the divine as Israel uh, committing adultery. Um, and, and so when you have this group of people who question God's divinely commissioned leader, they're committing adultery to some degree by thinking they know better than God and wanting to follow their own understanding of the holy and the divine instead of what God has self-revealed. And that matters. That cannot be allowed to, uh, to poison the community. And so the, the 14,700 lives lost, that's tragic and horrifying. And this sort of thing can happen when we break covenant with God. Uh, it's sort of like handling fire. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, so we're, we, we end this week 
uh, this week's reading with the budding of Aaron's rod, with the rules of the priesthood, which is where we'll, we'll talk about handling fire here in a minute, and the rules about death. Aaron's rod serves as a supernatural sign, and it serves as evidence that Aaron is the unquestioned leader of the priests. And <laughs> to, 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 not to put too fine a point on it, but Aaron's not sinless. You may remember his role in the golden calf story, where he's the one who took all of the Israelites' jewelry and who melted them down and formed a calf. Aaron's office is proof that God offers mercy to the people of God who repent and who act in good faith. Along with the, the, the censers from Korah's people, which are used to plate the altar to remind folks of the dangers of rebellion, the budded rod of Aaron is used to remind the people of God's chosen priest. But the people, however, are still terrified. Nearly 15,000 of them have died, and while looking back, we might see a certain logic to this, it must have seemed strange and capricious to the Hebrew people. They are not encouraged by the budding of Aaron's staff. Perhaps another sign and wonder, another miracle, isn't what they, they wanted or needed. Because they've encountered the consuming fire that is the God of Israel, and I think they might have been hoping for a God who was a little more tame. However, fire can be constructive when its power is respected, and when we take precautions, which is why these last two chapters deal with some of the legislation regarding the priesthood and regarding how the Israelites are supposed to deal with death. Now, up until this point in the story, God has spoken just with Moses or with Moses and Aaron, never Aaron alone. But here, God gives Aaron very specific instructions for how to attend to the tabernacle and how to care for the sacred zones of God's special presence. And because the priests are the ones who work with these sacred materials, they don't have a choice to stay away from the holy things. They need to be able to navigate them competently, carefully, certain that what they're doing is right. Now, as Christians, I think we sometimes tend to look down our noses at the Pharisees in Christ's time for being legalistic and rules-oriented, having all these 613 rules of Torah guiding their behavior and additional rabbinical interpretations adding to those 613. But there's a certain safety and comfort in knowing the rules and following them, particularly after an episode like with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the children of Israel must have sought and found refuge in these rules. It was these rules, after all, which preserved their lives, guaranteed that God would not lash out against them as God lashed out against Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their followers. It's in the final chapter for this week that we see some odd rules about a red heifer and dead bodies, along with being unclean. I won't spend too long on this, but part of this, some scholars suggest, is to help Israel avoid uh, building into their worship a worship for the dead. This was a relatively common practice among their neighboring people and tribes in the ancient Near East, and sometimes corpses were preserved as objects of worship. By painting dead bodies as sources of contamination in the law here, the law neatly teaches the Israelites that corpses are in fact not objects of worship. Rather, they create almost a miasma of corruption, we could, we could think of it as. While it's not related to our understanding of disease, it 
shares a similar function, I think, where um, one of the things it says is that anything in the tent that doesn't have a cap firmly screwed on or secured, if a corpse dies in the tent, well, the miasma of the corpse has sort of, quote unquote, infected that item. By making corpses unclean, the law has made it so that Israel will absolutely not worship the dead. Now, uh, I'm recording this on Thursday morning, so if you asked a question late in the week, please forgive me for not touching on it today. Uh, I'll pick it up in next week's podcast. One question that was asked was by Jeannie S. Uh, her question is is long, and uh, I'll, I'll read it verbatim uh, so you can hear it. And, and Jeannie, thank you for the question. If I uh, misrepresent part of your question, let me know. Jeannie asks, is it confusing to others to have priestly and pre-priestly interpretations woven into the numbers text so that there are contradictions or different explanations and accounts of what happened and why? No wonder Christians today disagree about the interpretation of Scripture. Jeannie had a second part to her question. I want to take care of this part first, and then I'll ask the second part. Um, perhaps, Jeannie, you recall, and, and maybe others recall, that there were several authors of the Torah, according to scholars. One of these uh, four groups of authors is thought to represent the priesthood and is called the priestly author. This priestly author has a distinctive style and really respects the priesthood and the laws and the separation that happens between the people and God. I think that might be, Jeannie, what you're referring to in the first portion of, her, of your question. And I agree with you that navigating numbers is super tricky. And I think that um, the, the tension that's held in scripture between some of these stories and numbers with some of the parallel stories in Exodus, I think some of that tension is intentional, allowing some room for interpretation. And yeah, no wonder we disagree about interpretation of scripture today. Um, if I misrepresented that question, let me know, please. Uh, I think that's what you're meaning by that. The second question Jeannie S. asked is um, whether I agreed with the interpreter's Bible commentary that the priestly writers believed the Israelites' failure to value God's land, similarly to our modern failure to value the earth, results in our losing the promised land that God wants to give us. Jeannie, you include that this seems like a stretch to you, though you agree that we're called to care for God's creation. I think that's a really important question. You may remember that the covenant God and Abraham entered into included four things. It included that uh, uh, the, the people of Israel would be numerous, like the sand on the seashore. So there would be a people. It, it, it named that the people of Israel would be a nation. Named that they would receive a land, like you allude to. And it named that God would be their God. Each of these four things, people, nation, land, and God, disappears, at least temporarily, as a result of Israel's rebellion against God. Uh, you can kind of track this disappearance, and I'll try and name it as it happens throughout the, the story of the Old Testament. However, all of this is going to be restored at the end of all things. Whether it's through not valuing the gifts that God has given, or whether it's through not valuing the giver, I'm not sure, but I can certainly co-sign on your idea that we are called to care for God's creation. And I think that the interpreter's Bible commentary has an interesting uh, uh, idea there, um, we need to value the earth. We need to steward it carefully because God's given us responsibility for its stewardship. Well, that's all for Numbers 14 through 19. Next week, we'll read Numbers 20 through 25, and we'll get to meet Balaam, a prophet from Moab and a very interesting character. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.